I don't know. I, it must be different because you're like all straight and white and whatever, but like. <laughs> you froze, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Repeat. <laughs> I don't think he's back yet. I don't think so. Glad that didn't happen while we were recording. I know. He'd be real pissed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris, and I'm in New York City, and I'm by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. What's up? Hi, guys. Hey. How's it going? Going well. Uh, I wanted to poll the group. Did either of you go to your high school reunions? Never. No. No? I contemplated, I contemplated it, though. I was going to, and then I think, what, either they didn't have enough numbers and they canceled, but I was thinking about it. I don't, I don't, I, you know what? This just came up in a conversation, and people are like, no, they don't want to go to their reunions. I'm like, why not? Oh, my God. Jason, and you didn't go to yours. I, I, you know, it's actually, this is something I've been reflecting on. Not only did I not go to my reunions, but there are, like, certain people that I have not kept in touch with from, like, whether it's high school or other past experiences that... You know, they pop up here and there. And I don't know. I, I have like some aversion to like a reconnecting. I don't know if it was like I, I didn't like myself back then. Like, I don't know what it is, but I, I am not eager to reconnect. People I've kept in touch with, like you two for a long time, like great. But pe- seeing people I haven't talked to in 10 years, it feels uncomfortable for me. I would have thought Facebook would have helped that. I'm all Facebook. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm I've been problem. fasting. I get dribbles of news from everyone I've ever known through Facebook. Uh, <laughs> so I guess it's there's no impact anymore. I went to my high school reunion and it was great. Did you really? I had a great when time. I, I, that's I because was... you've improved with age too, though. Oh, okay. I wasn't going <laughs> to say this. But... I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm a man of a certain age, right? Yeah, these dudes. Oh my god! <laughs> That's why you had a good time. That's great, Chris. Was that like deep connection? It was like I looked better than everyone else, and that's why I had a great. Time. Listen, listen. First of all, okay. Listen, it wasn't about that, but it was. Um, <laughs> I appreciate the honesty, Chris. I really listen, do. Listen, it wasn't until I got there and I realized what a sorry state. Like men in their forties are, and like yep. I keep really well, <laughs> super well. I mean, the popular kids in high school were afraid of me at the reunion; like they didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> Did you up at the reunion, Chris? Did you go steal people's money? Give me your money, kid. I should have. I should. Oh my should god, have. it was crazy. Um, the only two people who kept well. Uh, oh god, I don't know who listens to this. But the other, the other black guy in high school. (laughs) (laughs) The other black guy in high school look great. Also improved with age. He was very attractive still. (laughs) Although you know what I find, I find that child rearing ages people. Even the dudes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what it is. It's just really what it is. I look at my timeline. I'm like, wow, parenting, an aging factor. Not a good. Yeah, mm-hmm. I had I had a full head of hair before I had kids. <laughs> no, first of all, no, you didn't, Jason. <laughs> I know, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, you didn't. Oh my God, no. For all, 
for all the joys people talk about with parenting, they certainly don't mention the drawbacks like that. <laughs> you, you, I feel like they mention yeah, the drawbacks some... all the time. No, and there's research now that par- parents of young children are slightly less happy than than parents who don't have them, or that uh, people honey. don't have them. Excuse me. Well, me out. that's a given. <laughs> Speaking of children, so the uh, the reunion was at a bar mm-hmm. uh, on like a weekday night. Mm-hmm. And why does this dude show up with his wife, cool, and his two young daughters? <laughs> oh, no. So no babysitters. We're at a bar, okay, <laughs> drinking. And he shows up with his kids, and, like, the kids start crying mm. because they're at a bar. <laughs> <laughs> and... Listen, I listen. I, I, I understand that childcare is a real thing, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I, I don't know time and place. I don't know. I just felt like this. This is not. Forget everyone else in the room. Like, is this enjoyable for you? But you know. Now, now I, I have to ask: Was Debbie Gibson there? <laughs> Debbie Gibson was older. <laughs> She's older than me, so oh, she okay. was not in my class. Amy yes, Fisher. Debbie, Debbie Gibson went to my high school. Amy Fisher did not go to my high school. Oh, and okay. is she still in jail? No, she got out. Did I, she go to jail? This is the thing I don't remember. Did she go to jail? Yes, I thought she Amy, got out. Amy Fisher went to jail. Um, if, if if you're listening to this and you don't know who Amy Fisher is, congratulations, you're young. <laughs> <laughs> or you don't have Lifetime Channel. Cause... Yeah, you did not live through the most confusing summer news cycle <laughs> ever experienced. What a wild, wild story that was. Crazy. Google it. Awful. I mean, what was going on back then? And yet it all feels simpler. <laughs> you know what? It was it was pre-internet. So really quickly, if you don't know who Amy Fisher sure. is, back um, in the 90s, uh, a classmate of mine, uh, she was engaged in a relationship with this older man in his 40s. Uh, and She was like 16 at the time, She right? was 16. Or, no, no, no. She was 17. Doesn't matter, is it? Uh, I mean, in, in New York, it's legal, but that's not the point. The the part that got the nation's attention is that Amy confronted the man's wife or vice versa and then shot her in the head, shot the man's wife. Oh, uh, she and, showed up on their doorstep, yeah, confronted and shot her. her on the doorstep. And that made national news. I remember that week, Saturday Night Live, every single skit was an Amy Fisher skit. It was, <laughs> was they could not stop talking about it. Uh, she went to jail for a very long time. Then she got out and she did, guess what? Porn. It's a way. It's a way to transition. It but is, I will say, if yeah. you weren't a part of the cycle, like, I think, I don't think I really attended to it much. I saw it in the movie version. <laughs> Which one? There were several. Life- several. Lifetime. <laughs> but, you know, remember back in the day, they used to do TV of, movie of the week on like abc cbs or nbc one of the major stations i think they did a round of that but then as always lifetime did it and did it well so Mm. (laughs) that was my acquaintance with it and then of course you know i watch i watch id channel so i think they've done that a few times talking about that today uh you know what though amy fisher was pre-internet would this kind of thing be a sensational today yeah, it still yeah. is. Yes, it, it still is. It it's just that you would you would surround it more. I mean, I think you know, you TV only went as far as it could, you know. Um, but now, I think if something like that were to happen, you would have a sit down. You'd have direct video. Maybe she might even have taken it on her cell phone if she had the chance. I mean, I just think you would have a lot more information. Those things are still salacious, you know. I don't think we are. Our senses are completely numb to it. Weirdly, I disagree, Jason. What do you you think? So I disagree. 
No, I definitely think it would. I mean, look, she shot the woman in the face on her doorstep. She was a teenager sleeping with a much older guy. It was so salacious. And it still is. Yeah. That's what Chris, Chris says. You're not convinced that it's, it feels salacious, Chris? It's I mean, like it's listen, like, damn. No. <laughs> it's, it's salacious as hell. I just think the last 20 years, the last, um, what year is this? Yeah. Well, the last 15 years of having the internet infiltrate every aspect of our lives and also the news cycle being reduced to about, what's it now, 13 seconds long. I just don't think that this would have captured the nation's attention the way it did. I mean, if you guys cast your minds back, that is all the news was about. And let me tell you something, the news vans in my neighborhood, they were like camped out. Like it went on for so long. We were thinking about missing our graduation because she went to another school and we were all going to go to that school. So, I mean, just so we could be on TV, like it went on and on and on and on. And I just don't think that kind of thing would happen today. I mean, for sure, to be sure, like I see on the internet, like especially like with teachers and students sort of thing, right? That kind of shit happens all the time. It happened in Brooklyn the other day. And like, I don't know, It you get news for about one day and a follow-up the next day once the guy gets indicted and then it No, I think that's true. I, do, I don't think it would last as long. I also think Joey Botafuco would win a Republican primary election. I mean, Joey so. Botafuco would have been president. If yeah. he, he, it's not too late. He could still <laughs> run. Still run. Actually, and, that's not that's not a, name recognition is half the battle. I so. mean, pretty much, and he could be like, "I banged a seventeen-year-old. Please elect me." And although, although he did admit it, he did admit, which is different from Roy Moore and the president. I, I wonder if that I, would that help or hurt he, him. He didn't fight back in the way that Trump loves people to fight back. I love no, that I we can discuss this. this and and like in all seriousness, I love that this this is where we are point i mean what i think is really fascinating is after this period we're going to ask ourselves what makes someone eligible for office in terms of morality because that was a serious that was a serious consideration maybe what five ten years ago i'm not certain that that's the same landscape we're living in because remember what was it howard dean (laughs) for screaming howard dean just screamed out loud with passion and they were like you're done you're done wrong temperament. So, I mean, I think that this raises a, just a larger question for the future around sort of like the morality, um, the moral character of, uh, of, of candidates in the future. But I'm just not what? sure how much leverage that's going to have. It's not just morality. There are no agreed upon qualifications. Basically, it's a popularity contest. You don't have to have, I'm serious. You don't have to have any experience. You don't have to be at all moral. I mean, just look, look around. Like, you don't have to, you know, show your tax returns. There are no norms around this anymore. You have to win the popularity contest. And then How fascinating. You, then can you imagine if that's, can you imagine if that's how you picked your doctor? Yeah. <laughs> Although, okay. Should I say this in public? I, I have picked a doctor based on how handsome they are before. I knew you were going to say that. I'm sorry. Ugh, I have. It's tragic. I, okay, but you're fine. assuming something, though, because you know what? Because he has the label of doctor, you're assuming that he at least went through some training. So uh, picking sure, based on looks. <laughs> well, but what, what I'm saying is, like, he, he has the tag of doctor. So you could then, you, you know what I mean? Someone has given him the stamp that he's gone through yeah, school and he's done. So you the could correct- then you could then go off her. Yeah, you didn't say I'm going to go get a checkup by a good-looking guy I met in a bar who you yes. know, works <laughs> although, at a exactly. Although I've been there as well. 
Your, val- your value systems are loose. <laughs> Lucy goosey. Lucy goosey, as they say. Um, okay. So <laughs> as we're talking anyway. about Trump, uh, let's barrel into the first topic. <clears throat> and this is something that I've been thinking about for a while, and it's kind of haunting. I was in a conversation with a friend of mine who was talking about Michael Moore and the movie Fahrenheit 11.9. Is that what it's called? The new yeah, I always have to do that calculation too because it yeah, was nine one one back in the day, and now it's eleven nine. Yeah, eleven nine. <laughs> um, and oh. in that movie, Michael Moore proclaims that Donald Trump will be the last American president. And a lot of the things that Michael Moore has said about this this particular cycle of politics have come true. Like he named the states that Trump was going to win when we all thought that night that Clinton was going to get them. Like he's been right. Yeah. He did predict he was going to win. That's right. Like he's going to get Pennsylvania. He's going to get Florida. Like he laid it out. Um, And I think this has been troubling me because in a way I think that he's right. Cause I've asked myself the question, what does it look like for Trump to leave office? Like, how does that work? Because given who he is, given the rhetoric that he's like whipped up in the country, I don't, I can't picture a concession speech. And I also can't picture him appealing to a crowd, telling them to trust the democratic process that he has been working so hard to undermine. So in 2020, when that rolls around and he runs up against whoever, Kamala Harris or Biden Booker or whatever it is, leading up to that election, he'll be in full force with the whole, it's rigged, it's rigged, it's rigged. When the results come out, I'm not certain what that looks like. Is this the end of peaceful transition of power in America? What do you think? You just look at him throughout his whole life. Everything is fight back, right? If he's getting sued for something he clearly did wrong, he still fights with everything he has. Um, you know, he you know he loses a popular vote, so he makes this wild allegation that there's never been the slightest hint of evidence. I think your question's a great one. I definitely think, you know, it will not be. I, I, I vividly remember when George H.W. Bush lost to Clinton and, that, you know, it was kind of a heated campaign. And then once it was over, the result was in George H.W. Bush got on TV and said, you know, something very respectful and mm-hmm. peaceful. There's no way that's going to happen with Trump. But I think what I don't know, which is, I think, inherent in your question is how bad is it and how does it end? And I don't know. I mean, he certainly has followers that have been willing to engage in violence over things like this. So it's kind of scary. What do you think, Tricia? I mean, I think it all depends on what he wants. I mean, because I think in the beginning he was prepared for a concession speech because I don't think he thought he was going to win, but I think he was preparing a, a sort of media platform. So it depends on what he has in mind for his transition and where does he want to go. I mean, I, has he fallen in love with political power? Has he fallen in love with this space? I don't know. Um, it's hard to know. It's hard to tell. I mean, I think he still wants the kind of legitimacy that he doesn't quite get from this position. So I would imagine that if he has a good transition plan, I could see him telling people to come join me over and watch this network or something. I mean, I just, I just, I think it's all performance for him. And so if he can continue to perform for the public in some shape or form, I think he, I think he'll find a way to transition. I don't think it's going to be a transition that we're used to, though. I don't think it's going to be that. Please turn to my um, opponent and welcome my opponent as the, you know, the winner of the president of the United States, and you know they're headed in the right direction or any of those kinds of language. Because he's never done that. He didn't do that. For, he didn't do that with his opponents in the primary, and I don't expect him to do that. 
whatever happens 2020. So for me, it's less about that and more about does he create a, does he or his operatives create a space for him to feel like he can exit out of this in a way that feels like a win to move on to something better? Will we survive this transition? I mean, are you surviving this? (laughs) I I mean, I don't know. Um, My point is though, that like, I like what you said. Like, yes, he probably he's probably got Trump TV or whatever that product is, that bullshit product he's creating to sell to people. He's he's ready to go with it, I'm sure. There's a the product. Is, there's something. There's definitely a product because he wants to make money and he's always been about himself. But I think it's the rhetoric that I don't think you can turn down anymore. You know, if if like recent events have shown that his followers take him seriously and they're willing to enact violence. So in, in, a, in a heated campaign, in the run-up, when he's talking about rigged elections, when he's talking about this, that, and lying, 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 by the time the results come in and he's like, all right, everyone, my opponent was an asshole and now come watch my TV station. Is anyone going to hear that over like the months and months of what he's been saying? That's my question. Like, I, I just don't see how that, I, I don't see how the I nation think, comes together. Well, yeah, but that, see, at the end of the day, I don't actually think that has anything to do with him, right? Because you're asking the question, you, you know, he, your sense is that he's going to feed the, he's going to feed the fire, but has he ever doused a fire? Can he douse any fires? if he wanted to or chose to. And so that's my sense of it too, is that it doesn't really matter what he says. The question I then have to ask myself is, what are the kinds of things that would need to be in place for us to deal with that transition as a society? Well, you know, who that, that's, that's really it. Not him. Cause I don't think you can turn off a fire once you start it. I think it's a great point. And I mean, obviously the, the question that comes up for me in response to your question, Chris is, is he going to lose in 2020? I, I hate to say it. I have a hard time at the moment. I mean, a million things can happen between now and then. But right mm-hmm. now, I mean, if like the election was soon, I don't know who would beat him. But I think what you're saying, Tricia, makes sense. I mean, it, some of it will depend on if someone beats him, what's the coalition behind that person? Yeah. You know, how does that? No question there will still be a lot of people unhappy if he loses a lot. And some of those people will be very fired up. But I, I don't know who that person will be and who that person is will make a difference in terms of how things proceed. Yeah, you know, I'm reading this book right now um, that was recommended by Marshall Gantz and it was um, When Movements Controlled Parties. And it's really fascinating because it really talks about, you know, he really establishes that the American system is sort of set, it's flawed. It's a two-party system. People who are trying to get a, a third-party thing going are completely clueless. So what he talks about is how you generate a movement of people who care passionately about a particular issue. And then that movement, in order for those ideas to hold sway, you have to find a place to exist within a party structure. And so your question about who is a part of that coalition is really important because if, a group, if somebody wins that... Trump that some of Trump's you know followers feel has the right idea about where of the about the direction of where the country needs to go it could be interesting because you never know I mean maybe some of these maybe some, maybe as radical and as crazy as his ideas are maybe someone will swing some of them a little bit to the center to feel like they they get the white vote right and so 
what if people become a little bit more conservative in some of their policies in order to um, in order to sort of compete with Trump? So it's like really it is a question of like what are the what's the coalition of groups that what are the coalitions of groups that come together to win? If, and is that enough to give and is that enough to get people to feel like hmm this is this country's heading in the I'm not sure. That's that's the question for me. I'm not sure. If that conversation is about policy at all, you're making an assumption. No, I don't it, No, I'm not making it about policy. I didn't say anything about policy. I'm talking about the co- the groups. Yes, Who, but what you're saying you, is you know that, what I mean? What you're saying is that that group, you know, if they tack conservative to capture some Trump voters, that's I mean, that's interesting, but like I don't. I don't think Trump voters are interested in policy in the first place. They so, kind of are. I mean, I know we say that they're not, but they they're they're interested in a sort of radical policy that we don't enjoy. But they are. They're interested in borders being closed. They're interested. You know what I mean? Like it's a kind of policy. It's not I mean, something we like to talk about. There are elements of some of his ideas that can be implemented in policy. You not offering pat, not offering visas to certain countries. I mean, there are lots of things that we thought would be illegal, but pay attention he's filled the courts with the kind of judges that are going to tacitly whatever is legal is what's legal and once you once you have a a court once you have conservative judges on the court that whatever comes into law is law remember what is right is not necessarily what's legal so you can completely change the shape of this country and so when you say they don't have policy they do have some policies they're not ones that we celebrate but they do they have specific ends to them. And so, yes, it's not practical to build a border wall, but there are some policy initiatives that's like a wall that prevents certain people from coming in, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the question I have to ask myself is like, you know, what's the conclusion that a Trump voter um, takes about the state of the country? Do they believe the coalition of whomever wins is moving in that same, same direction or at least has been moved a little bit to the right? I don't know. I mean, or it could be a dumpster fire, but I'm just saying it's, it's, it's just, it's really, I think we're entering an unknown territory. It's hard for me to imagine that the Democratic Party going into the 2020 election is going to move towards the center. I hear what you're saying, Trisha. That's I, weird. Just, I just have a hard time seeing it. I think there's, where the, where the base of the Democratic Party's enthusiastic is being like a complete foil, right? It's like, we are for immigration, we are for environmental protection, we are for, you know, healthcare that is government sponsored. Um, I mean, I I do think healthcare is actually an area where it could go to hell in the next year or two. And if that happened, I think I I, I still, I'm still scratch my head thinking about like, what would cause some of the people who support Trump to stop supporting him. And I don't know what it is, other than some major collapse of and. Healthcare might be might be that thing if it does collapse and if enough people blame, you know, Trump and the Republicans for that. But I don't have a lot of thoughts about like what would it be that would cause people to secede from uh, from supporting Trump. I think I'm more cynical and dismissive than both of you. I don't think that there's anything policy related that will get Trump voters to turn from Trump. I think some of the college educated whites and and some. I'm told, I don't know if I believe this deep down, but some college-educated white women who voted for Trump, I think he's losing. I've heard that he's losing some of them now, but the actual base, I don't. I think they're impervious to policy discussions. I think that Trump is a feeling. Trump is a movement. 
Um, and I think that's what they voted for and that's what they want. So, I mean, while I think some of the things that you're talking about are, are true and right, I think we're talking about like a middle of the road Republican who's still thinking about their government in those terms. I think Trump, Trump opened up a portal for a lot of Americans to just, you know, I mean, he's a reality TV host, right? So like he hosted, he um, opened up a portal for a lot of Americans to sort of um, jump through um, and trust their guts and not really, not really check their lifestyle versus what the government could help them with that lifestyle. Do you know what I mean? So I, I, um, I, I think, am I cynical I and dismissive? Asking... I think I'm a little, I feel cynical and dismissive in saying mm-hmm. that. No, you're not. But I think what you're talking about is the question for you. I, I think the reframing it is not so much about the Trump voter. I think what you have to ask yourself is about the fringe element of that group, which is really what you're talking. You're and the sub question is how fringe is that fringe? That's I think uh, and that's how, my question. You know what? I think the you know it's probably a, it's a pretty large number. I think I just recently saw something that said like nine. It's about 19 million people consider themselves like neo Nazis and far right, whatever you want to call it, so, something along those lines. Um, but you know because the assumption is that everyone that voted for Trump and listen, it's a very comfortable thought, right? Everyone that voted for Trump is essentially like a Nazi on some level, right? That, that's kind of part of the argument. But I think what you want to know is how intense is the base and how willing is the base to go to the nth degree if there needed to be a transition of power. And I think what I was alluding to is that I think depending on the, co- the, the winner and depending on the direction that the country goes in, because there's no guarantee that this country can swing left. The assumption that the Democrats are going to hold the line feels weird to me because they haven't been, you know, and they, they take advantage of the people who are actually their base, which are people of color. They don't own that space fully even. So I don't take that for granted either. Um, and to be chasing after this white voter that they imagine they can, they can still seduce. So I'm not prepared to say that I don't think the Democrats could, could be swayed into moving in a particular direction. And also, we have no idea what the state of the world will be. Maybe a conservative America makes sense in that, in, 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 a, in a universe where China becomes like this massive superpower. I don't know. Like, it's just, it's really hard to tell. But I don't assume that the American, that America is built on this, like, move towards the left necessarily. I just don't see, I don't know that. I, I feel like there could be a real conservative push for the country as a whole, depending on how intense (laughs) international politics becomes. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you're cynical about that at all, Chris. I think that's, I think that's something to fear. The question I want to know is whether the right and the very far right and the fringes of it is willing to sort of burn the whole thing down. If he is not, that's, that's the question. That's the open question. Does it, do they take hints that the country is moving in a direction that makes them feel like they can still have a space in it? Or do they say the country's completely gone to hell in a handbasket and let's burn it all down? I mean, it'd be weird for him to encourage them to burn it all down because it'd be harder for him to make money. But I don't, you know, like, I feel like that's the compromise that people want to have. I feel like that's the compromise he wants to have. I think he wants to agitate them and be and have them be fully angered. But I think at the same time, he still wants to be able to figure out how to monetize that. And I don't know if anyone's monetizing countries that are destroying themselves fully. I just don't see how that happens. Um, but we've been doing it for Af- with Africa and South America for, for decades, uh, centuries. 
So, but I don't you know, know what happens when it, you know what happens when it happens at home. I don't know what that is going. Yeah, to be right. Like. Hmm. I mean, right. I think I think there will be violence. There will be violence, though. Yes. And I think I the believe that. Thing, which you know, put on your tinfoil hat. But there's the other thing that he just might refuse to leave office. I mean, this is a man who cozies himself up with the biggest bullies and despots. For in the sure. World. You know, he is busy um, lauding the Philippine. Filipino president yeah. and he's cozying up to Kim Jong-un and you know we all know about you know his relate his intimate relationship with Vladimir Putin I mean these are not men known to encourage democracy in their countries he has been attacking the democratic process this entire time like Michael Moore had said this in an interview that he did on the view but like he's a CEO and a billionaire he runs he's used to running companies how many companies are run as democracies Right. None. So, well, and his less than most. Like, <laughs> seriously, like there are corporations that you know have semi-democratic, you know, shareholder dynamics. Like, I don't yeah, think no, him, companies it's like him and his children in positions of power. And what does that look like to you? I think what what troubles me is that people elected him because you know there's this whole thing like I'm going to run the country like a business, and it's like you know you might get what you asked for. A boss that never leaves. I mean, it's also what our institutions look like two years from now. How strong are they? How robust? Do we have a strong ACLU? I mean, these are the kinds of things you have to ask yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll we'll hope for the best and see what happens. I'm worried. I'm really worried because I I don't, I can't picture it in my head for the first time ever. As contentious as things have been. You know, he's an older person. He's not fit. He's not in his fifties. Well, you know, exhaustion, a desire not to be tired and running the country well, is is there. There's also that Castro element. Castro did his thing until he died. And yeah, I mean, you could he could always install his children. Really, I mean, that's kind of the question. Someone pointed this out to me yesterday, and I've been thinking about it. Is that like the way that our politics are set up? Like the check on the president is Congress, right? Yep. And generally, generally, that's the way it's supposed to go. Um, in a in a situ- in a dark situation like I'm describing, Congress would be the one to check the president. Congress is elected by the minority of Americans, right? So the minority position, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the the check on Congress is the president, who lost the popular vote, who gets to elect justices to the Supreme Court, uh, yeah. who is then confirmed by senators who represent a minority of the country. Like it's well, we've had minority rule for a, a good for a good couple of years. And perhaps just couple couple in presidencies. Relief, yeah, perhaps it's just in high I think relief. so. Uh, I mean, now do you change your mind about the Electoral College? No, no. But I mean, I think maybe also your question depends on the state of the Congress too, right? Mm-hmm. Not so, so much about the blue wave, but what, do, does he have a Congress that holds him in check? Does he get that? In November. Okay, cool. So, or not cool. I don't know. This sounds, I'm, this keeps me up at night. This is it, our historical moment. That's all we can say about it. Didn't you ever want to be in a historical no! moment? No! Why does everyone <laughs> keep asking that? No! <laughs> Sorry, then. Do you think people in like Rwanda or during Kristallnacht were like, oh, this is our historical moment? No! <laughs> I don't want to be in a historical moment. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, you want to be in the most boring time ever? I want to be in the most boring, <laughs> agrarian focused <laughs> in history. That's it. I want to oh, be fine. born like I died. I just want it to be simple. No crises. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> all right. So moving on, let's, uh, we're going to talk about museums. Trisha, take it away. Everyone tells us that the millennials are killing things. And I started to think to myself, what about the state of museums? And two thoughts occurred to me. First, I was thinking to myself, in a technological age where it feels like people want to have mediated experiences, does it make sense to show up live in person and look at photographs or imagery in, or artifacts? And then the second piece of it is I have noticed that a couple of museums have been doing a kind of soul searching. They have been coming, they've been reckoning with where they have gotten their artifacts. They've admitted to the thievery that's basically at the foundations of museums. And so those two things I'm holding in my head as I'm thinking about what is the future of museums? Do we still go to them? Do they continue to resonate? What do you all think? Well, I will speak for myself for a second and say, I I don't love... speak for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I, I and you know, I'm 43 years old. I'm not a millennial, so this may that that may become very clear in what I say. But I love museums, and I love museums in kind of the most traditional sense. Like I love going to an art museum. I recognize a lot of the art stolen, but the opportunity to see artwork and uh, you know, the article that, that uh, you suggested about this, Tricia, you know, talked about, it kind of made fun of the like placard next to the artwork, right? And who needs to read that now? Because you just look it up on your phone. I really like the experience of like a quiet, beautiful interior. And I like reading those placards and seeing, oh, this is oil. And, you know, I still, I've, I've, always like that experience i still like it i don't feel like i need anything different i i mean i would like to see you know the colonial powers return some of the riches and the artwork to the countries they came from but like i can remember you know there was a period when i traveled a lot around the world and i loved going to museums in in other countries i remember being in jordan by myself and it was you know it was it was difficult to travel there and you know i don't speak arabic but I remember then finding a museum and going in and, you know, seeing the artwork. I, for me, that's very special. So for myself, I can say I don't feel like I need anything different. Um, but I do get that museums are having trouble getting the attendance, even as much as I like museums. Now that I'm, you know, busy with kids and everything, like, I don't always have time to go. To, I mean, I don't go to museums nearly as much as I would like to. So I, for me, I don't know that the museum needs to reinvent itself, but maybe it does. It doesn't for me, though. Jason, you hit upon a lot of things that I wanted to mention is, first of all, what's the purpose of museums now? Yeah. It is the information age. So much information is available to to us. Um, What does it mean to see an actual artifact up close? Like, what's the value of that? Does that still have value? Because before internet, before photography, before um, the news, before uh, PBS, there were, the only way you could have access to history and this sort of thing was going to a museum, reading those little placards, taking the tour, et cetera, having someone tell you. It was like the extended classroom. Now, every, now you have that classroom on your phone. I'm not saying that museums are useless, but Jason, then you hit upon something where you know, what's happened in this recent age is that we've become keenly aware that so many museums uh, just raided 
other cultures, cultures um, of color and stolen their artifacts and propped them up in the museum and claim that they own them. You know, and I think that was touched on in the in the first couple minutes of the Black Panther movie, which I thought was a fantastic yeah. way to really bring attention to that. Like, yeah, oh, you know, you can't take this piece. Well, why not? It belongs to my people, not yours. And I, I think the purposes of museums need to re- to be rethought. I went to the um, oh god, what's the name of it? It's in Athens. It's I think the National Museum, and. They, you know, they have a lot of art in there and then they have these beautiful friezes on the wall, but entire sections of it are missing. And it says on display at the British Museum. Right. And right. I was there with a friend who was Greek and he got really emotional and very upset and had to like sit and contain himself. And I didn't, I, 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 I could, couldn't empathize with this, right? Not this particular wound, but like he is in his country, in his capital, trying to learn his history. And he has to go to another country because someone came in and stole it to put it into a museum. And there's something about that. I think when you think, when you ask, should we rework or rethink museums? I think the answer is absolutely yes. But then the question then raises for me, like, well, what are museums for? Why are we going there in the first place? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think I've often thought about museums as a particular way of organizing knowledge, right? Of, of talking about the value of things. That's really what I, I, I'm assuming a museum is about. And different museums, right? Because I think an art museum is very different from a history museum. For art, for some reason, you know, it's always felt as if it's a space where others would have to curate knowledge for me. They have to tell me why this art matters, why this is good art, why this art endures, um, why this artist endures, why their work endures. So to some degree, that aspect of the museum learning and the museum experience, I think continues to resonate for me. But then when you think about history, which is I think where a lot of the reckoning has been happening, I mean, it can happen for art too, but I think in terms of products that were stolen from other cultures and then defined for others to consume. That's the part of it that I think is really, I think a more nuanced and challenged part of the museum's mission, right? Because who's to say your version of events is even real? You know, so as they come to reckon with kind of the historical like thievery, how do they talk about how they had organized knowledge, how wrong they had been or right they had been or any of those parts? And I think in some weird way, I feel like that intersection of technology and the push for kind of experiential learning could make a museum come alive because then a museum can almost like interrogate itself in its exhibit. It could say like in that museum where you're in Athens, it can say why this piece is missing and what that's about that could become part of the experience as opposed to this sort of purely curated, seemingly linear, clean historical presentation that has happened with museums. I kind of get a feel for where you're going with this. Like, and even with that presentation, what is the response Mm -hmm. that we heap upon these institutions? So if you go to the the Athens museum and uh, you have an experience where they talk about why these pieces aren't there, and they're mm-hmm. in the British Museum. What's the British Museum's responsibility to the Greek people? You know what I mean? Like, I guess my it's question- history. It's a real history. It's a it's a part of it. A part of the history is that we stole things from you, and that there was aggression in our history. I mean, part of what happens is that museums sort of sanitize history, 
these artifacts and they never talk to you about how it even lands there <laughs> and why they even have it. So I actually, and what I think cha has changed is that now people actually start asking those questions. That's part of the experience. I mean, I, I don't, I would, I don't know this world very well, but I would like to see, I don't see why British museum, I mean, British museum has artifacts from all over the world. I'd love to see museums like that return some of those artifacts and countries be able to have their own museums with their own artifacts. I think I would too. So do you believe there's a value to museum besides the stolen pieces? Because if you want other countries to have their own museums, you're saying that there is an inherent value to the museum itself. Well, look, that we we do have a convention of the like traveling exhibit, right? And so <laughs> you'll have like museums in China that send certain artifacts around the world to be seen in other museums, and then presumably they come back to the country. Like that happens a lot. I think that's awesome, but that's obviously very different from we stole this from this other country and they're never getting it back. But you both were really excited about the prospect of another country having the opportunity to display their own thing. So this begs the question that you asked, Chris, what's the purpose of a museum then? And are you rejecting some element of it because the pieces were stolen? Would you be more comfortable if the country had its own pieces and can tell its own story about it? Yes, and this is why. Because the construction of the museum as it stands now, right, which is this, that uh, colonial powers went and stole stuff and they put it in museums in their homelands, right? It's making, it, it, it is making an assumption about who history should be delivered to. Like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's making a decision about who this stuff will be valuable to. And, not, and, and the insult to injury there is that they stole the pieces and then get to tell the story. And I, I t there's something about that that really hits me where it mm -hmm. hurts. Like Jason said, like the traveling exhibit is a real thing. And plus, like I said, in this new internet age, like, yeah, give all that shit back to Ethiopia, right? And then maybe there's a way for me to visit the Ethiopian museum digitally, right? And they have their own artifacts there and I can access them and their history as told by them. Now, the the colonial powers are definitely part of that history, but there's something that smacks me the wrong way. Like I just don't enjoy the fact that the British Museum stole the stuff from the Egyptians, then gets to tell the story of the Egyptians through the stuff that they stole. Okay. There's something okay. about that. Well, separate from the stolen aspect of it, yes. do you think museums have a place in contemporary society and do you foresee them having a place in the future? Well, let me there, are lot, there are lots of things that are going to be eliminated future time. So museums is up, museum is one, I'm asking. Well, let me tell you something. As we all know, it gets hot in the summer. And when it does, <laughs> you need a big air-conditioned building to go into. And that's mm -hmm. where museums come in. <laughs> Let, let's not underestimate restrooms. Especially yeah. in the countries restroom. where the restrooms are typically not good, when you go to a museum, you typically get clean restroom mm -hmm. oh my god that's so really... instrumentalist you're so instrumentalist <laughs> and you're Marcus, right there practical. <laughs> it's hot you know what i mean in the summer and you to be in a big old beautiful place listen i think there's definitely having people gather around i love people gathering around education or history i love all that i think my thing is that museums as an institution i see it like a library like it is a cultural place where people can come and 
interact with, talk about, experience culture. And maybe I'm getting too hung up on the stolen pieces. But yes, the answer to your question is yes. I think it does have a place. I think there should be a place where people can go and experience and manipulate uh, and have a an experience of culture. I think that's valuable. Jason, what do you think? No, I, I totally agree. You know, I also think, yeah, you can look stuff up on the internet, but it's different when you're in the room with an artifact, right? When you're in the room with an artifact that's thousands of years old and you get a sense of exactly how big it is and what it actually looks like. Um, I don't know. To me, that is a unique experience and it's a worthwhile one. I think so too. I, you know, I think my, as time goes on, I really appreciate spaces where we join together, where we can be in communion with each other, but we're not, it's not a dark theater where we're having shared experiences. <laughs> I like that. So that's also the value for, for a museum to me. Yeah. And also to have a con- to have a sort of conversation with who to uh, with what people think of as great. <laughs> right? Like great works of art. Why is this a great work of art? <laughs> well, that's a whole other conversation. That's you know a long I mean? conversation. Yeah, but to be able to sort of have that conversation with a group of your friends if you go to a museum and you see a section and someone says someone has declared things about that work and then for you to kind of confront it and talk with your friends and say, oh, I don't really get that and all of that kind of sp- – I mean, there's, there's something kind of fun about that experience, I think. You know what I want to ask you, too? In wrapping up this topic, can you talk about an, ex- uh, an experience that you had at a museum that you thought was really forward-thinking or great? Because I'm, I'm just thinking about this now. Like, what does the museum of the future look like? And um, Trisha had ser- shared an article talking about, like, we should, or not we should, but that museums could stand to move towards more experiential as opposed to um, didactic. Um, have you had an experience at a museum where you felt like you were interacting with the culture and learning in a way that wasn't necessarily reading little placards? You know, actually, I did. Um, and I might have mentioned this before because I think I might have it might have been a recommendation, but it was my most recent museum experience and I really liked it. So when I was visiting Philadelphia, I went to the um, American History Museum that's downtown, which, hello, hello, it's Philadelphia, 1776, go down there. Um, but, you know, I was really wondering how they were going to deal with the slavery question, the black question, the Native American question, because there's a way that we want to present American history that's really sanitized. But I really liked they I really liked what they did. I mean, and it was actually a strong infusion of technology. What they did in one section when they were covering various tribes is they ended up having these um, tribal figures sort of appear out in the mist so you could see the way their outfits were different from each other colors they were using and they had um they had the tribes tell the stories of how they were connected or disconnected from each other that was really interesting and then also they had um a little interactive tablet about four or five um black americans and the trajectory of each of their lives so like you would see an image on the screen um you'd see an image maybe in a picture and then it said what happened to this black person and then you could go down to the screen and hit the tail and they'll tell you where that person ended up or whether they lost touch with that person so it was like it was an opportunity for you to come 
to sort of see something at a distance and then get closer to it. I really liked it. And I, um, and I think that there's a t- there was a tremendous amount of pressure on that museum to transform this narrative around the American, about around sort of American history as sort of necessarily progressive. And, you know, as we move forward, we've just progressed. What I liked about it is that the museum ended up saying at the end, because we travel throughout the museum from the past all the way up to as close to um, contemporary society as possible, and said that the American question or the American experiment still lives, which is not this, which is, I like it. It's not the assumption that there's a complete answer, like freedom, all of those kinds of big words that we toss around as Americans, they they continue to be open questions. Can we achieve them? Um, Are they achievable? The museum actually lent itself to that, which I thought was really great because that's not how I remember museums representing themselves in the past. They sort of made the the past seem really static. Jason, what about you? I feel like I could think of a lot, but what what I will say I think the most recent that I've seen that I think is just amazing is the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And I and to me, that museum, if I if you visit that museum and you visit the other Smithsonian museums kind of in the same day, to me, like that is exactly what one would hope um a a modern museum, a, a contemporary museum looks like. It it has a lot of the elements of other great museums, but I think it's much more kind of multimedia the way the the whole environment i don't know it's just i think it's an incredible experience i learned a ton and i i probably saw i'm not exaggerating one tenth of the museum and i learned a ton and i can't wait to get through the rest of it what about you chris uh honestly i'm a big fan of looking at stuff on pedestals and reading the little plaques (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna be honest i you know in the context of this conversation, we've been talking about historically historical museums, like talking about history as opposed to art museums, where I get like a it feels a little different to me. But I'm in thinking about like museums that are explicitly talking about history and historical artifacts that aren't necessarily works of art. I'm sorry, I really can't think of something that I was like this was great. Other than, and this is a small museum in New York, the Museum of the City of New York. They, um, it's a small museum. It's like three floors and it's got a really narrow focus. Uh, <laughs> it's just the city. And some of the exhibits they have and they rotate are very evocative. Uh, they, they did one on, um, just social movements in, uh-huh. in New York city from civil rights to Stonewall, the Stonewall riots to all sorts of stuff that have been going on. And, you know, at every station, they had like stuff to listen to and there was interviews with people and there was like a lot just going around. So if you were the kind of person who needs to read stuff, there was stuff to read. If you wanted to listen to stuff, there was stuff to listen to. If you want to see stuff, there's stuff to see. And there was stuff to manipulate for younger kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I thought that kind of thinking was helpful. It was really cool. I still think about that exhibit, but yeah, I guess, I I mean, I, I, I don't want museums and we've, should wrap this up, but I don't want museums to become like a fucking Six Flags experience. <laughs> I, I just don't. Because I feel like, you know, whenever we have conversations about things that are stayed and old, we're like, well, we got to jazz it up. And maybe <laughs> no. And I'm like, let's, let's not do that for everything. I think there's something that needs that. I think it, it I think museums are a space that are useful. I think the politics of it, 
have been troubling, but that can be corrected without necessarily need to like destroy what museums are, which is like a repository for our history and art and culture. Ours being all of ours. I think you should be the keynote speaker at like a museum curators conference. <laughs> you are speaking <laughs> I'll do it. I'll do it. Book me if they can afford me. I'm there. I don't turn down speaking engagements. You should hear me try and negotiate. I'm like, this is what I this is what I usually charge to speak. And they're like, we'll give you a fourth of that. I'm like, sold. <laughs> okay. Let's go with your recommendations. Something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced, you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Jason, go first. I just saw The Hate You Give, and I thought it was really, really good, very emotional. I thought it was very real. I admit I haven't read the book, so I can't compare, but I thought it was very real. I thought it was Can you a very. for people? It is. It, the movie is about an incident where a young black man who is not armed is shot by a white police officer during a traffic stop who thinks the youth is armed but should have should have handled the whole situation very differently. The main character is a young woman who is in the car when the man gets shot or the boy, I should say he's a teenager. Um, and she, her character is very interesting. She lives in a very tough neighborhood, uh, but her parents send her to an affluent private school. And so it's about her identity and, and the challenges she has as an, on an everyday basis, navigating those different worlds and then about, you know, she kind of gets radicalized by this incident. The acting is great. It's, it's very well done. It, it has humor. Um, it has some uplifting kind of optimistic parts. But again, I think it's very real. And I, I just thought it was a very, that was very well executed and a very kind of honest portrayal. I think the characters are, you know, they are not simple in, in a good way. Like they, you really, for every character, you get a real sense of, their challenges, their limitations, you know, what makes them tick. I thought it was great. Nice. That sounds great. Yeah. yeah Trisha. That was good. Can I recommend a book that I'm just starting though? And I'm enjoying, I mean, but it's taken a while. Um, but if, it's bad, if it turns out bad, that's I like, send hate mail. That's like once I recommended Spike Lee, she's got to have it. The Netflix series before I got to the last three episodes. <laughs> And, and then like, you're upset. That. Yeah. And I was like, no, this was shitty. We should have that as a topic. I've been, th- you know, I've only seen a couple of those episodes. I'm not sure why it was a good idea to take the movie and like <laughs> cut it up like that. Yeah. It wasn't. Mm. Mm-mm-mm-mm. We'll have to well, let's revisit it then. So I'm toggling back and forth between two books right now. One is when movements anchor parties, electoral alignments in American history, and it's by Danielle Schlossman. What I like about it is this sort of interesting look. First of all, it just presumes that we're a two-party system and the fantasy that we're a three-party system or could be is really annoying to me. So given the fact that we are a two-party system, how do people inject new things into parties is, um, is sort of the subtext, I think, of this. Because it really talks about how different parties have shifted alliances throughout the years and how that happened. And um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious about that, also because I like the idea of not being so trapped in this present moment. So a, a sort of historical sweep is helpful. I find that his, in this moment, historians have been kind of soothing to me. And I don't, not because I think they have anything 
Um, not because they actually are trying to prop us up, but they just have such a long sweep that they're like, well, this feels familiar. Um, <laughs> so that's been sort of helpful. And then I'm also reading Hunger by Roxane Gay. Um, I really like her writing. I think it's really smooth, but it's very difficult reading in the sense that it's really, um, it's about trauma. But I've, I just like her style of writing. So I've been toggling back and forth between those two for the last couple of weeks. And I'd recommend either. <laughs> it's not the fault of the book that I haven't finished them. It's really just my own damn time. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and yet again, I have nothing to recommend. <laughs> I recommend the comfort of your own company. Uh, just sitting in a room by You're yourself. You're becoming Jason. You're becoming Jason. Stop with that. Stop with these radical... Listen... <laughs> uh, I have not had time. I am I am reading a book now, but I've already recommended it, so I'm I'm not going to recommend it again. Um, <laughs> everyone, everyone should read Fantasyland by Kurt Anderson. It's fucking phenomenal. I uh, have it on my phone. I downloaded yeah, it. It's I mean he's very breezy in his writing, and <laughs> I I do have to fact check him sometimes because I feel like you are just really racing to your point. Um, like, <laughs> But so I'm not going to recommend that. Fun fact about me, I've cut the number of TV shows I've watched by half. So, so you're only watching like 32 now. <laughs> okay, Jason. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so yeah, I don't. I'm going to recommend everyone uh, taking a walk. Yeah, I'm going to pull a Jason. What is the mediated experience there? Listen, you know what? <laughs> Take a walk, everybody. You know why? For those of us who don't live in LA, um, the weather's turning fast, and soon there's going to be snow on the ground. So you know what? Just go take a walk. That's that's. I'm sorry. That sucks. I can't wait for <laughs> Trisha. When we when you link the media uh, recommendations on Facebook, just take a walk. Just link that. link me walking. All right, I will <laughs> link, link a video of me walking <laughs> around. No, I, I'm sorry, everybody. I just don't have anything. I don't. I haven't gone to a movie in forever. And I don't know. You haven't read a book. Haven't gone to a movie. Haven't seen a show. I've been. I've been, I've been watching politics a lot, and I don't well, recommend anyone else to do that. Not recommend that. No, no, I'm, I'm recommending. Trying to quit. I'm trying it's to quit myself. Tragic. What's next for everybody? Uh, I think I'm going to try to meet up with a friend and have. Hmm, is it? Is it? If it's cool outside, I might have some um, pho. Um, otherwise. Soup, Chris. Vietnamese oh. soup. Okay. <laughs> you know what? You said pho, and I, I expected you to say gras next. So I was like, I didn't put in like, I was making soup. I was like, is she trying to say pho gua, but pho gua? <laughs> but is she just like trying to be hip, and she just says pho now? That's I'm not even, know. I've never been hip, so that was <laughs> never going to happen. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you guys a secret. I have not left the house all day, uh, and probably uh, not showered. Uh, I haven't showered, and I'm thinking like, can I get away with this? Can I just not go outside? Yeah, uh, of course. So I'll let you know how it goes, Jason. What's <sighs> up to you? What are you doing after this? I'm really tired. I think I'm. Oh, dad. Oh, dad. Old just, people. Oh man. See, <laughs> having tired. kids does age you. Well, there's no question. I'm not arguing. Just look at you. 
you are going to be in bed. And and so the listeners know it is fully 5 p.m. This <laughs> is right in bed. So. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I feel like I'm on later time. That's great. That's great. I love it. All right. Well, then, to both of you, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.